From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. It's October, which means it's LGBTQ History Month, a time to remember, look back, and celebrate the history of LGBTQ activism and the resulting progress. It's also a time to acknowledge the work still to be done and understand the roots of systemic discrimination and inequality. To that end, our fight continues. On October 17th, the ACLU is headed to district court in Arkansas to argue the case of Brandt versus Rutledge, where we are challenging Arkansas's law banning healthcare for transgender adolescents. Today, we have a special conversation for you. We're hearing from Jillian Brandsetter, communication strategist for the ACLU's gender justice work, in conversation with Chase Strangio, deputy director for transgender justice at the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project, and Jules Gill-Peterson, an associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University and author of The Histories of the Transgender Child. Together, they'll break down the case ahead of us and the history... That brought us here. Okay, take it away, Jillian. Chase Strangio, Jules Gill Peterson, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Chase, I want to start with you. On October 17th, I know we're going to be in court in the Eastern District, U.S. District Court in Arkansas, challenging that state's ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Can you walk us through a bit some of the questions that are raised by this trial and some of the clients we'll be representing? Yes. So on October 17th, we're going to be in, uh, beginning a trial in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And this trial is challenging Arkansas's law, which was passed in 2021 We have been preparing for the last year and a half for a trial to hopefully obtain a permanent injunction blocking this law from going into effect. And in essence, what this law does is it bans all gender-affirming care for minors in Arkansas, which include things like puberty blockers, gender-affirming hormones, and top surgery for transgender adolescents. And notably, all of the prohibited care is permitted when it is prescribed to adolescents for any other purpose. And so we are representing four families and two doctors challenging the law, raising a number of constitutional claims. The first is an equal protection claim. In essence, we're arguing that this is a law that plainly and clearly discriminates on the basis of sex and transgender status. And it is a law that on its face says that you cannot obtain gender-affirming care, and then it defines the care based on the type of medication you're receiving based on what the law says is your biological sex. So right on the face of the law, it singles out trans people and it conditions care based on sex. The second constitutional argument that we raised in this case is a fundamental rights argument on behalf of the parents. And we hear a lot about it right now in the context of things like parents not wanting their children to learn things in school, parents not wanting their children to have to wear masks or get vaccinated. Um, So actually, the fundamental right of parents over how their children are raised um, is something that we hear a lot about in the context of the current political climate. And 
there is a sort of longstanding constitutional tradition of respecting the rights of parents to make medical decisions for their children in conjunction with doctors. And then the law that Arkansas passed also has a provision that prohibits referrals for care. So in essence, it bans the care itself. And then it says doctors can't refer for the care. So we also have a First Amendment claim challenging that piece of the law. And the district court, in essence, held that uh, we were likely to succeed on the merits of our claims and blocked the law preliminarily back in July of 2021. Recently, in August, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that preliminary decision. So this law is blocked. And now the question at trial is, does the law violate these various constitutional provisions that we've raised on behalf of these trans adolescents, their parents, and the doctors who treat them. Thank you, Chase. And our challenge against this law, I know, has been brought on behalf of three families with transgender youth and two medical providers based out of Arkansas who have been uh, really threatened with criminalization of the care they provide. We have a vast and large number of amicus briefs that have been filed in this case from medical organizations, from research bodies, from advocates for youth who are really defending this care. And there was one brief that I wanted to draw on specifically, which was filed by transgender adults who had really had their lives improved by access to this care, including many who uh, transitioned as youth. This included uh, celebrities as well as just regular workaday trans people. I was struck by just how rare it was to hear about trans people's experiences from our own voices in a legal setting like this. Why was it important to have trans people ourselves speaking up in defense of this care? Yeah, I mean, I love that brief and it um, was sort of modeled after another brief that's similar to it that was filed um, in Gavin Grimm's case when it was at the Supreme Court. The state in these cases is arguing that one of the reasons why the state has an interest in banning this care and focusing in particular on young people is that because being a trans adult is a bad outcome, that they want to intervene early in preventing this horrible, depressing future of trans adulthood where you have no romantic attachments and you have no love and you have no sex and you have nothing good in your life. That is really, in essence, what they're arguing, which is, you know the state should step in because this is something that can be prevented and should be prevented. And so we really wanted a counter narrative to that to say, we are trans adults and we, our existence is in direct contravention of what you're saying. We have full lives and we have beautiful families and we have communities that love us and we have all of the things that you claim that we don't. And then, of course, there's this sort of public narrative piece of it, which is that, you know, the courts are not going to be our pathway to liberation. And this is um, just another opportunity and a critical one for people to be able to control the narrative of their lives and tell their own stories. And so I think that that's another reason why it's been really important. I want to zero in on that point you made, that one of the ways that politicians like to argue against the rights of transgender people is to suggest that we don't have a future or that our future is one of purely misery and that we are not capable of, you know, utopian thinking, of being able to think into the future and lead fulfilling lives. And one of the ways that they do that is deny and erase the fact that transgender people as a population also have a past. And that's where uh, I want to turn to Jules. 
I think that, you know, in the year since Arkansas has passed that bill in the law, the public rhetoric, the legal actions, uh, and the politics around transgender youth have uh, only grown more extreme and are playing a larger role in a reactionary movement that is rolling back a whole set of rights and is really portraying transgender people as the main character in their own nightmares. I want to help our listeners understand how we got here in a much broader context. And I think the very notion of a transgender child is a relatively new thing for a lot of people. And they assume that because it's new to them, it's new, period. So I'm wondering, when you're working to dispel that myth, where's a good starting point for people to begin to think about how both the medical world and the the political world have engaged with transgender kids, or at the least kids who have challenged uh, our understanding of gender? Yeah, there's been this conflation of the idea that, you know, if a sort of median layperson hasn't heard about someone before, then they didn't exist and just showed up to the party. And it's like, well, it's a pretty self-centered point of view. Um, So the good news is, of course, you know, trans folks have been around a long time. Um, In fact, we've been around so long and there's so many different kinds of us. So if we rewind the clock, say, to the 1920s, the 1930s, Right. There were other places in the world where, you know, some trans people were already medically transitioning, but the U.S. was sort of, you know, kind of lagged pretty far behind. Um, And so at that time, you know, trans youth didn't necessarily, nor did trans adults have any reason to sort of like thread their existence through medical transition just because it like literally wasn't, you know, an option on the on the menu of life. And so we can go back to that period and see evidence of trans youth, you know, in fact, trans youth without the kind of language we use today, you know, articulating themselves from a young age, being accepted by their families, being able to live and actually transition, you know, in the sense of socially transition, you know, as far back as the early 1930s, kind of really clear evidence. So we see trans youth in that period before there is widespread medical transition, but the moment that there is, On the one hand, you start to see trans people being like, ooh, I want that. That is affirming, right? But you also start to see um, on the other side that medical gatekeepers, that the people who are sort of become the architects of the medicalization of everyone's gender, not just trans people, but intersex people, cis people, every single person's gender, those people become really interested in trans youth because they're really interested in children in general, Right? They're interested in the idea of studying young people to understand where gender comes from, how gender develops, and in their really pathologizing, really dehumanizing, and, you know, frankly, scientifically problematic attitudes at the time. They're just like, we want to study people we think are abnormal because it will help us control and isolate them. It will help us confine them and restrict their freedom. It will help us Um, coerce them into appearing more normal to satisfy our anxieties, but also we can just use them essentially as laboratories to figure out what makes people tick. Um, And so trans people, including youth, really had to advocate for themselves, just as we do today, to get access to the very kinds of medical treatments that were built sort of on our backs, right, or on the backs of some people much more than others. 
And part of the damage being done by these bills today is that not only are they, you know, taking away important health care, right, they're basically also wiping away a century of struggle where trans people have had to fight tooth and nail to get access to the things that we deserve and that we have a right to, right, and that we've actually been an active like participant in, right? So when a sort of, you know, straight cis state legislator is like, I want to ban this kind of care just for trans people, even though like, you know, maybe me or my kids or people in my family also receive gender affirming care that we'll still be allowed to receive. It's like, yeah, you owe that to trans people and intersex people. And now you're going to take it away from them. Like, you know, so there's something kind of shameful um, or shameless about that. But ultimately, right, like history is really on our side here. We have just overwhelming evidence that trans youth have been around a long time. And the moment that something like medical transition exists, you have kids, you have teenagers who are like, I went to the library and read every single medical journal I could find and taught myself this stuff. And I'm going to write a letter to a doctor, explain that I'm trans, explain that I qualify for the diagnosis and ask for help. And so it's just like, Cool. You know, when we start there, all of these supposed concerns and worries that these anti-trans political movements platform just completely melt away. They become beside the point. They're irrelevant, right? They have no grounding. They have no standing. It's so funny when you say that, because I think about how part of the story that we're hearing now is the production of the trans adolescent in particular is sort of the product of YouTube and social contagion. And people are telling each other how to get this treatment in this totally new way, as if we haven't been doing that always. These are disingenuous stories that they're telling. And the objective, of course, is to keep people from having a history, keep people from having community. So yeah, I mean, I just was thinking about that when you were speaking, Jules. I want to be able to give our listeners some landmarks here for this conversation. And one way I think to do that is sort of to draw out who some of the characters are in this history that you tell so well in your your book, Jules. And I want to get to how trans kids have navigated the system, how they've fought for their own survival. But when we say, particularly around the mid-century point, that a lot of doctors were performing research on trans kids, and this was a time in the medical field when the standard of ethics was basically on the floor as far as what doctors considered okay to do to patients and and even against their will or even their definition of consent from a patient. So I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners about John Money. Sure, sure. So, you know, John Money was a a psychologist and sexologist. And, you know, some people may have heard his name before. He's, you know, not remembered particularly as as a great guy, um, but worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital for many decades, beginning in the 1950s when he was hired out of grad school. And, you know, he's sort of a a figure that appears in my book, and, and Hopkins, the hospital, plays a really big role in basically inventing the model of trans healthcare that we still have to deal with today. This sort of gatekeeping model, um, this model that came about in the 1950s and 60s, and in the mid-60s, Hopkins becomes the first U.S. research hospital to open a quote-unquote gender clinic. And so essentially, money comes in having done graduate work in Boston with intersex you know, people, basically the quote-unquote problem of medically assigning sex to people who don't appear to be binary, right? Don't appear 
in some sort of vague way (laughs) to either parents, to doctors, right? Don't appear to be as male or female as the adults in their life would prefer. And money, you know, is, is part of this kind of cohort and generation of people who construe the birth of a, of someone who isn't obviously male or female as an emergency, like actually as some kind of urgent event demanding intervention. When of course they all admitted even already at that time that like, there's nothing really medically <laughs> significant about like not looking male or female, like they already knew and had known for decades that human sex variation is just like so astonishing that there's really no rubric. And he shows up at Hopkins and basically starts giving psychological advice to endocrinologists and surgeons and kind of helps craft this model for imposing sex and gender on people. And it's really pivotal. This has huge impacts on intersex people. It has monumental impacts on trans people, but actually has impacts on everyone. Like the idea that your physical body needs to match your perception as a man or a woman in the world, that's like a very 1950s idea. I know it can often feel like, oh, well, surely we've always sorted people through the gender binary. No, not really, not in that way. Like before Money and his cohort came along, scientists generally believed everyone was sort of a mix of male or female. And like, you know, that's why some men are more feminine and some women are more masculine, you know, and like like whether or not we want to go back to that scientific paradigm is not a conversation for this podcast. But the point being, right, is that it's the mid-century where we start to see this social imperative. People must be made to appear normal in society. That sounds like a very 50s kind of thing, right? Like the height of conformity. And so when a child is born or when a child announces, you know, that they don't agree with the sex they were assigned at birth, this is constituted as a social problem that medicine is going to show up like as the sort of judge, jury, and enforcer, right? We're going to decide what you really are, whether you're a boy or a girl, and we're going to intervene into your body often without your consent to force you to appear normal so that you quote-unquote fit into society, right? And that's actually the sort of unfortunate medical origin of the gender binary that we all live with today. In a lot of the history, you would even encounter gauging and sort of the history of, of trans medicine and the notes these doctors would take, sort of tracking a transgender person's transition, right? Um, They would basically be gauging how well they were performing their gender identity based on extremely archaic and arcane uh, understandings of what it means to be a a man or a woman. Yeah, exactly. But as you write about in your book, and as lots of historians have written about, there were decades where transgender people, the ones who were pathologized as opposed to criminalized, were quite literally tortured, who were made to look at themselves uh, in, you know, to watch videos or look at pictures of themselves cross-dressed and uh, forcibly made to vomit or injected with electricity. And really the worst forms of conversion therapy were enacted on trans folks. And the place where the medical community is today is not perfect, but it is far, far better because it treats each trans person as an individual, as opposed to these rare outliers who need to be shoved into extremely narrow boxes about what it is to be a man and a woman and only a man and a woman. The takeaway from that, right, and the way to maybe 
understand the legacy of that era today, right? I, I think is comes down to one key distinction. You know, the medical model that was invented in the mid-20th century, this medical model that John Money was a part of, that Hopkins was a part of, that Stanford and UCLA and all of these big research hospitals created, um, doctors appointed themselves the task of deciding who is and who isn't trans. Outwardly, publicly, right? Behind closed doors and there's letters to each other. They're like, I have no idea. There's no test to determine who is trans. It's all a facade, right? Um, but today, right, the big difference is that trans people can finally exercise a kind of primacy of agency, right? So when we come in and we're consenting or affirming, right, we're giving affirmative consent to um, different kinds of medical procedures or medications that we might want, same as anyone else going to the doctor, we're able to do that from a place of agency instead of fear and supervision and power imbalance. To this point of agency, I'm wondering if you can tell me about Agnes. And a story that I know a lot of trans people really like, but I think a lot of our listeners probably haven't heard before. Who was Agnes and, and when does she appear in, in sort of the medical archive? Agnes is a really interesting person to think through because she's a trans girl, um, you know, who's going through adolescence in the 1950s. Okay. So even a little bit before, like this whole, before that gender clinic had even opened at Hopkins, for example, right? This is over in Los Angeles. And, um, You know, she shows up at the University of California, Los Angeles, which had this sort of very informal, weird clinic going on where you have social scientists, psychologists, endocrinologists, surgeons, um, a lot of people just kind of hanging out and basically kind of doing this creepy thing where they're like, let's bring people who are socially abnormal and study them together um, and figure out what we can do about that. But Agnes is one of these people who shows up in the late 50s. She meets all these folks and she's like, hey... I'm intersex. Um, you know, I, I was assigned, you know, as a boy at birth, raised as a boy, but gosh, when puberty started, I just started becoming so feminine and female. Like my body is changing, you know, da, 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 right? And they're like, okay, well, we'll examine you. And they're like, this is so remarkable. I mean, this person that we would have assigned male is in fact spontaneously becoming a a girl during puberty, right? And they're like, amazing. Wow, that's so cool. They are really kind of hoping to find a biological basis like to trans people or intersex people. And so they're like, okay, great. Well, you're obviously becoming a woman, so we'll, we'll help you. You know, they get her access to surgery and she leaves. And then a few years later, she comes back and she sits down for an interview and she's like, hey, I was lying to you. I wasn't intersex. I just started taking my mom's estrogen medication that she like left in the bathroom or whatever, you know, when I was 13. And so I started feminizing that way. And I just gave you this cover story, right? And of course, like you have this whole brass of old white male doctors and social scientists who like, you know, supposedly never get over having one pulled over them by a teenager. But it's this incredible story, um, in part because I actually think it resists simple explanation, right? Like for a long time, obviously the medical establishment used weaponized Agnes's story. And they're like, this is the reason why we can't trust trans people. They're liars. They're deceptive. They'll do anything. They'll do anything to get what they want. And it's like, yeah, duh. Have you seen how you act? Um, but on the other hand, there's been a lot of romanticization of Agnes. Like, she's this rebellious, like, subversive, you know, hero for trans people. And it's like, well, 
sure. But like, also she was just like a white girl in LA whose mom's like medicine cabinet was overflowing with estrogen, which like a lot of white mom's medicine cabinets were overflowing with estrogen in the fifties. So like two things I like to say about kids like Agnes, one, you can't do that anymore, right? You can't go to the doctor and be like, whoops, I don't know what's happening. Maybe I should be allowed to transition, right? It's way harder than it was back then in the sense that there are all these rules and regulations. But two, after Agnes got away with what she needed, the state of California did not pass a law to stop anyone like Agnes from ever transitioning ever again. That did not happen. There was not this kind of state animus singling out trans people as a kind of class of people to discriminate against. That didn't happen back then, right? And so, again, just looking at what has shifted, some of what has happening today is arguably even worse than it was in the 1950s, right? By one measure. Speaking of state animus, one of the more vicious and cruel policy moves we've seen regarding transgender youth and this modern era, came out of Texas in February. And the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, in partnership with the attorney general, uh, Ken Paxson, issued a directive to the state's child welfare agency to begin the process of investigating gender-affirming care for transgender youth as a form of child abuse, a completely novel claim that no court in the country has ever found. And this has terrorized families with transgender youth across Texas, whether or not they're receiving this kind of care. And Chase, I know that we filed not one, but two lawsuits in Texas in an effort to protect these families and prevent this directive from going into effect. I'm wondering if you can walk us through what each of those cases are trying to do and what the current landscape for them looks like right now. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I think it's important to sort of connect the escalation in Texas to other escalations in Texas from Governor Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton and the legislature there, um, because you're seeing the ways in which particularly the executive, but also the legislature have targeted in the context of SB8, the ability of people to access abortion using this sort of surveillance scheme, having people deputized to enforce the restrictions at a time before Dobbs was decided and there was still a constitutional right uh, to access abortion, um, sort of trying to get around that in these ways. And then, of course, you have Governor Abbott and, you know, of course, with the support of Paxton doing, um, you know, sort of busing migrants out of Texas in a way that, you know, in essence is using state control and deception to control people's bodies in a different way. But unfortunately, there's a way in which I think under, in particular, the nature of U.S. state regulation and capitalism as it manifests here, people are very strategically pitted against each other. And so instead of seeing these solidarity moves, we end up seeing these moves to differentiate one struggle from someone else's in a way to sort of bring oneself closer to power instead of, you know, uh, systems of power, that is, instead of uh, uh, with alliances with those who are similarly targeted. And so in the context of Texas, it's things we've seen from Governor Abbott and, and A.G. Paxton over and over. And this obviously had a very immediate and terrifying effect on families who are just trying to get <laughs> medical advice for their kids, trying to send their kids to school. And, you know, Paxton and Abbott, and particularly Abbott in this case, made it very clear that not only would the families be targeted, but the entire public would be uh, potentially criminally liable for not reporting the families. We had this initial response to say, well, they can't do that. 
But of course they can do it if what they say ends up happening or has the chilling effect of people not feeling like they can safely care for their families. And that was very clear right from the start that we ended up in a situation where very soon after this directive was issued by Abbott, an extra legal directive at that, you know, the agency itself decides to take it upon itself to start investigating families, despite the fact that this is an agency that's entirely overburdened. You have, you know, thousands and thousands of young people in foster care in a system that's overcrowded where kids are dying. But again, as in so many of these, you know, sort of movements or discourses, they don't care about kids. They're not protecting kids. They're protecting their power. And so we filed two lawsuits in state court arguing, in essence, that the governor and the so-called child welfare agency did not have the authority to do what they were doing under some state constitutional theories, as well as under a state administrative procedure act theory. Um, and we were able to get a sort of series of injunctions blocking the enforcement of the directive, um, first statewide, and then it, it's been sort of stayed at various stages in the state court litigation. There's lots of moving parts. And ultimately, you know, this is very much ongoing. Um, the impact um, is regardless, uh, on some level, regardless of what the courts ultimately say, the impact has already been felt. People are completely and totally destabilized. Healthcare has been disrupted for many families. Um, and I think that this has also animated and is not independent of this larger public discourse that situates the conversation over trans care as something that is like legitimately within the terrain of public debate and political regulation or state regulation. And so I think that, you know, we will keep going to court. Absolutely. And um, we will keep lobbying to block these bills. But I, I think we're facing a, a much more <laughs> grave and fundamental problem of how our bodies and our healthcare are situated in like public discourse and um, cultural exchange. You mentioned this point about the really strong need for solidarity around trans people right now. An increasing focus for a lot of attorneys and researchers here at the ACLU, and in particular from the Women's Rights Project, is this family regulatory state. Are these uh, social work, uh, child welfare agencies that are usually managed by the state and that have surveilled and spied on and removed the children from poor families, from Black and uh, immigrant families, from Indigenous families, for decades. And really before that, family separation is not a particularly new or novel feature of American history. I want to turn to Jules because I'm hoping you can give us a sense of outside of how the medical world has governed gender and, and uh, gender amongst youth in particular, how has the carceral state really regarded transgender youth? In your book, you you uh, sort of point that in the first half of the, and in, into in parts of the second half of the 20th century, there were sort of these two paths and white trans kids like Agnes were pointed off to medicalization and may have been abused and subjected to high standard in that medicalization. But a lot of trans kids of color were funneled off towards criminalization. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand that second half of the story. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is why, in fact, what's happened in Texas is so pivotal, right? And it speaks to you know, Chase, when you talk about these missed opportunities for solidarity, I mean, this is in part, right? I mean, I'm not, I don't have to ever litigate in court, so I'm freed from having to, to use that language, right? I think this is why, though, we keep losing ground, right? And we're losing ground on these issues because we're not 
advocating with the full force of the overwhelming majority of people who are harmed by these policies and who have been harmed by their predecessors, by the infrastructure that's been mobilized, right? It's like, well, what is the history of child welfare in the United States? It's a carceral, colonial, like attacking the Black family, attacking Indigenous kinship structures, breaking up migrant families and family separation have been the signature tactics of the United States for centuries. And so, yeah, you know, there's a long history, um, a kind of racial fault line, especially in the United States, right? And this has to do with the fact that we're led, we're coached to talk about race and gender as these two separate things that, you know, some people have both, right? I mean, it's just like bizarre ways we're told to talk about identity in America that make us really incapable of seeing things going on right before our eyes. There are whole populations of young people whose genders are routinely policed as a matter of racial policing. So if your gender doesn't conform in school and you're black or brown, right, um, you're more likely to be singled out in class. You're more likely to be given disproportionate detention or, you know, um, out-of-school suspension. You're more likely to be funneled into the school-to-prison pipeline. You're more likely to be visited or have your family investigated by the state. You're more likely to be harassed by the police walking home from school. You're more likely to end up in juvenile detention. So in some ways, gender is used as an accelerant um, for this kind of carceral police institution. And I think that a lot of what anti-trans legislation tries to do is use targeting trans people as an impetus to extend a police state, basically building out an even more robust gender police state, right? And sometimes that will be, you know, about policing gender segregation in public space, like restrooms, right, or sports teams, but often it's actually just about race, right? It's like how all these anti-trans sports bills in practice will be used to investigate and disqualify and terrorize Black girls in sports. I think there's a kind of painful reckoning that a lot of people are being forced into right now about like, oh no, the horrible harm isn't just happening now. It's already been happening and I didn't do anything and I'm complicit with it, right? Like the thing about Texas requiring all adults potentially to be mandated reporters is like the state is compelling you to harm trans kids right now. It's already happened. You're already a part of it. So you can choose to try and stop that, right? Or you, if you do nothing, right, you are, it's not even symbolic, being symbolically complicit, like you are actively recruited into this project. The point is not that it becomes overwhelming. The point is that the, the connection points of solidarity are all encompassing, right? So when you show up to a school board meeting, right, or when you advocate, right, for um, prison abolition or when you're working towards that, you know, ending other kinds of, you know, police violence and other sorts of, you know, really, really pressing urgent issues, right? All of those are interconnected, right? And I think that that actually makes the job of advocacy and of movement work easier, not harder, because it's not like, oh, now we have to, everyone has to get a minor in gender studies to understand trans youth and then can, no, actually, like, let's focus on making sure these bills and policies are rescinded, but then let's think about reproductive justice and healthcare justice, because if you're fighting for access to abortion, you're fighting for access to trans healthcare, right? And vice versa, right? If you're fighting against police brutality and police violence or an unjust immigration system, right? You're fighting on behalf of trans people and vice versa. We are only stronger when we are, you know, going to bat for the vast majority of people who are harmed. And when we see these interconnections, right? So abortion rights, trans rights, and voting rights 
all interconnected. It's the same people who bring the bills, you know, to the floors of state legislators that go after all three, right? And, you know, it's the same tactics. It's the same logic. Um, and so why are we, you know, people who understand all of these as harms, not also like acting in concert? That is sort of ultimately my kind of bottom line. Well, I, I think we've had the right conversation here. I hope so, at least. And Jules, Chase, just thank you so much for your time today and for walking us through uh, what are some really heavy questions, some really heavy issues rooted in our history as a country and the history of gender and, and, and really complex ideas. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.